Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Daniel. I'm the executive pastor here. And I want to start today by describing a situation I found myself in not too long ago. It happens to me occasionally. I want to see if you can relate. Um, I was heading to work the other day, and on my way out, I was looking at some stuff in the kitchen. I realized I needed to get some food from the grocery store. So I made myself a mental note that on the way home from work, I needed to stop at the grocery store. So I drive to work. Uh, on the way, I have to stop for gas because the tank's getting low. So I fill up the gas tank. I go to work, and I spend the day uh, beating my head against the desk, trying to get an inanimate metal box next to my desk to send electrical signals in the specific way that I want it to. That's called using a computer. Uh, and then sitting in meetings with people that are hundreds of miles away, talking about things that have basically no impact on my day-to-day -day life. Um, you can tell I like my job, right? Uh, <laughs> actually, it's not true. I do like my job. Um, but I like to make fun of it too. Uh, so then, uh, end of the day, I'm going home, and I remember my little mental note. I stop at the grocery store. I pull in. I find a parking spot uh, in the crowded lot. I grab one of the shopping carts. I go into the store, and then I stop in the middle of the produce section, and I look around. And I say to myself, why am I here? Right? Or yesterday when I was making lunch for the family, I go from the counter over to the fridge and I open the door and I'm like, why am I here? What was I getting? Oh yeah, I needed an egg for a fried egg sandwich. But I couldn't remember. My brain just let it go. Any of you feel that that happens sometimes? Uh, why am I here? It's a common phenomenon in the human brain. Uh, they call it the uh, doorway effect. Apparently, there's just some pieces of information in our brains that we, we assign a sort of expiration date to uh, because you've reached the point where that piece of information has fulfilled the goal that you set for it when you decided you needed to remember it. For example... I need to go to the grocery store. Now that you're at the grocery store, you don't have to remember it anymore. Um, we've all had it happen. It's how we're wired. Uh, but why did I bring this up? Why am I here? Why am I, why am I here? That's the question. Why am I here? Um, well, sometimes you ask yourself this question. You ask it... Uh, because you forgot the task you're working on, sometimes it's more of like an existential quandary. Like, how did the decisions that I've made across the course of my life lead me to becoming a corporate cog in the machine instead of the artist I know I was meant to be? Or uh, sometimes you ask yourself if what you're doing right now has any real value. For example, I bet you there's at least one person in the audience right now asking themselves why they're listening to me rambling on about doorways and existential quandaries. There you go. Well, I want to answer one of those questions today. Uh, I can't tell you why you found yourself standing in the bathroom with a carrot and a can of WD-40. You'll have to figure that one out for yourself. But I can tell you why we are here today. We, Madison Church and the people who call this our community, I can tell you why we do what we do. 
We are here to connect people with God and each other. To connect people with God and each other. That is our mission statement. It's our purpose for being in Madison. And it comes down to these two easily stated points. We connect people with God. We help our friends and our neighbors find or find their way back to the God of heaven. And we connect people with each other. A leading cause of so much of the misery in the world, in the country today, comes down to people living without a solid community. And we aim to help the people of Madison to find a community where they can thrive. So our quest here is centered entirely around those two goals. We don't do anything if it doesn't contribute directly to one or the other. Our weekend meetings, both west and downtown, our Monday nights online, our small groups, our give back events, they are all places where we gather with each other and turn our focus toward God and his work in our neighborhood. So that's why we are starting a new series this morning. A new series. It's a three-week series called The Invitation. And as you might have guessed by the title, we're talking about why and how we invite others into our community here at Madison Church. So why do we want more people to come? Well, we don't invite people just to fill up chairs or to get more people to help set up and tear down or to make it so the workers in the kid room can be on a four-week rotation instead of a two-week rotation. It's not what we do. We don't invite people so that we can get more tithes and offerings so that Stephen can get a bigger paycheck or we can have some nicer coffee grounds in the kitchen. We don't do that. Well, all of those things might sound nice to some of us, they're all completely secondary to the real reason we want more people to come. And that's this reason. We invite people because Jesus makes our lives better and makes us better at life. People need to experience Jesus, not just hear about him. So when we invite people to our service or our small group, we're inviting them to experience the life that we found in him and the community that we've built up around that shared experience. We're inviting them to connect with God and to connect with each other. So for the next three weeks, we're going to learn how to extend the invitation to others by exploring how Jesus extended it to us. So today, we're reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, so feel free to grab your mobile devices and use the Bible app, or to grab the blue Bibles next to you, or whatever uh, other Bible you might have brought along. The words will be up on the screen as usual. And at this point in the story, Jesus is traveling with his disciples, his bros, his, his small group, and they are going from Judea, that's the southern region of Israel, up north to Galilee, which is more or less their hometown. And now, I, I don't know exactly where they were, obviously, uh, but as a point of reference, Jerusalem in Judea is about 85 miles, as the crow flies, to Nazareth in Galilee. And both are more or less centered in their respective regions. But right in between Galilee and Judea, right smack dab in the center, is Samaria. And as we'll discuss in a moment, Jews typically avoided Samaria. So in order to get 
to Galilee without going through Samaria, they would typically go around, which added an extra 20-ish miles onto their trip. And when you're walking, that's like another half a day of walking. So uh, this is about the equivalent of walking from here at the Leisure Center to the shore of Lake Michigan out in Milwaukee. It's about, at best I can estimate, a three-day walk, depending on how fast you're walking and how much of the day you actually spend in travel. So adding on an extra half a day to that is a huge deal. Um, so to save time on their road trip, they actually broke with tradition. They did not go around. They went right through the middle, made a beeline straight through Samaria. Uh, it, and uh, about noon... On what I presume was the second day of travel, they were halfway through, and they get to a town in the middle of Samaria called Sichar, and Jesus sits down next to a well and sends everyone else into town to get some lunch. Now, this is kind of unusual, if you stop and think about it. It's the hottest part of the day, and Jesus sits down outside of the town in the blazing sun, in the heat, and sends everyone else off. Why would he do that? Well, let me ask you, have you ever been on a three-day road trip with some people who are close to you? I mean, even the, even the closest of families hit a point somewhere along the way where oh, I just really want to be alone. I just got to get out of this car. So maybe that's something to do with it. But then something equally unusual happens. Because while Jesus is sitting there in the sun, a woman from the town comes up and she's there to get some water from the well. Now, we've taught on this story a few times in the past. And if you've heard me talk about this story before, you know, A, women did not get their water at noon. They got it earlier in the day so that they would, A, avoid the heat and B, uh, so they could, uh, uh, lost the train of my thought. Why am I here? Okay, so women did not get their water at noon. They went in the morning to avoid the heat and so they could have it ready for cooking and cleaning throughout the day. And two, they went as a group, not by themselves, both for social interaction and protection. So the fact that she's there now tells us that apparently she wanted to be alone too. So then all of a sudden she's approaching the well and you can imagine a look on her face of either trepidation or annoyance at finding a man sitting right in her way, when she was sure she wouldn't have to deal with people today. But even more unusual than all of this, Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Like I said before, the Jews and Samaritans were the biggest frenemies of all time. They were all technically descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yes. Now, it's hard to get these histories perfect since each side has their own versions of what happened in, in these sort of situations, but as far as I understand it, the people being referred to as Jews here are the descendants of the tribe of Judah, which became the kingdom of Judah when they split with the rest of the tribes who lived further north and became the kingdom of Israel. Their capital city was Samaria. Around 720 BC, the Assyrians came. They took over both kingdoms. 
the people were exiled. About 200 years later, the Persians were taking over the crumbling Assyrian Empire, and the Judeans eventually returned to Jerusalem. While the exact outcome of the other ten tribes is not well recorded. Now, at least some of them managed to stay behind, but they wound up mixing with a bunch of other people groups that the Assyrians had moved into that same locality. So they were kind of mixed blood at this point, as far as the Judeans saw them. Um, and those people became the Samaritans. The primary rift between these two people groups was an argument about which mountain was the original location of the Holy Temple. The Jews said it was Mount Horeb in, Jeru in Jerusalem, while the Samaritans claimed it was Mount Gerizim, which is close to the city of Shechem. Of course, even this was historically rooted in the separation that they inflicted upon themselves when the returning exiled Judeans refused an offer to help rebuild the temple from the Samaritans who still lived in the area. So, the point here is that these were two groups of people who had absolutely no love for each other at all. Their respective religious leaders taught that it was wrong to have any contact with the other group. According to historian and theologian W.O.E. Osterley, the Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues, and a petition was daily offered up to God, praying that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. That's how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. Meanwhile, Josephus says that the Samaritans scattered human bones in the temple court, which is one, that's gross and weird, but B, human remains were considered unclean, so they're not just being obnoxious, they're defiling the temple. It would be like a group of people coming in and defecating all over the church premises. On top of all of that history, in Middle Eastern culture, men were considered above women. And in many places today, that belief still holds. Men didn't speak to women in public, only to their families in the privacy of their own home. Women were basically servants to the men, and they were treated much like a slave would have been. So Jesus, in this situation, had every right and expectation to avoid and overlook this woman. But instead, he asks her for a drink. He initiates a conversation, and when she calls him out on his cultural faux pas, he sticks with the water theme and responds with this metaphor. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, we all know what it's like to be thirsty because we all need water to survive, and a lot of it. I'm actually a little thirsty right now. But we also know what it is to thirst in the metaphorical sense. To long for something to fill the emptiness inside of you. And to quench that thirst, most of us find ourselves re returning to a metaphorical well 
over and over again. We try and we try to find something to satisfy us, but in the immortal words of Mick Jagger, we can't get no satisfaction. For some people, that well might be their career, it might be drugs, it might be shopping, or like we're about to see for this woman, it might be relationships. In the words of Johnny Lee, you might be looking for love in all the wrong places. But what Jesus says is that if you keep going back to that well, drinking the water of this world, you'll keep finding yourself thirsty. Instead, he says, come try my water and you'll never be thirsty again. He extends an invitation. So then he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And now it all starts to come together. The reason this lady came to the well by herself in the middle of the day, avoiding all the other people in town, she's been led to believe over the course of her life that she's worthless. Think about it. She's been with five different husbands, and all five have turned her away. Even in our modern society, where multiple marriages marriages is commonplace, if you hear that a woman is on her fifth marriage, don't you wonder what might be wrong with her? Is she a a black widow, a, a gold digger, or just impossible to live with? I mean, these are the things that people think, right? Five marriages is a big deal. But what Jesus did here is he explained that not only does he know about her, he already knew about her before he extended the invitation. And he invited her anyway. He doesn't write her off. Which makes me wonder, who do we write off because of our preconceptions? And the things we think we know about them, whether it's there's no way they'd be interested, or they're just too far gone, or maybe even they seem to be doing fine without Jesus. Hmm. But Jesus never writes anyone off, does he? There's so much we can learn from Jesus. He knew it was the right time to make his invitation. He knew because he saw the signs because he was looking for the cues. The cues that we could also look for as someone might be open to an invitation. The first cue is that something is changing. People who are in the middle of a major transition are often looking for stability. They might not feel prepared for the changes they're facing. This might be moving to a new city, a new job, a new marriage. It might be the birth of a new child because nobody feels like they come home from the hospital understanding what to do with a new child. And having a community to support you during that time of transition is huge. The second cue is that something is breaking. This is when the person's life is not going well at all. It might be health issues, financial troubles, divorce, unemployment. Might be problems with the kids or even the loss of a family member. We never wish 
these sorts of events on people, but they're going to happen to all of us eventually. And when you meet someone in this kind of situation, it can be a welcome light in the dark to hear, I know you're having a hard time. Let me introduce you to some friends of mine that were there when I was going through a hard time. It really helped me. The third cue, something is missing. Maybe the person is expressing frustration or dissatisfaction with their life. Maybe they wish they had more friends. Maybe they say how their job or home life leaves them feeling drained. Or maybe they make a straight up comment about how they don't feel like they have a church home or they wish they had a stronger connection to God. That's some low-hanging fruit right there. But even when you see the cues, and I know this, it's easy to hesitate or to back out because you don't think they'll be receptive to your invitation. But did you know that a recent survey found that more than half of unchurched people in the U.S. have said they would be willing to accept an invitation from a close friend, a neighbor, or family member. More than half would say yes if they were invited by someone they know. We're going to do something a little bit different now. I'm going to invite Brittany to come on up on the stage. My name is Brittany. Um, and tell us a little bit about your church background, if you have any. Um, I really didn't have much church background. We only went on special occasions like Easter, Christmas, and it was we went to a Lutheran church, but didn't feel like home. Okay. So what brought you to Madison if you weren't born here? I don't know. Were you? I was not born okay. here. What brought you to Madison? Um, I met Thomas, um, my boyfriend, and my father's son, and um, we wanted to be closer, so... I moved up here, and we moved in together, and that's what brought me to Madison. Right, right. <laughs> and I like moving, so okay, I, moving. I like moving to different places and experiencing new things. Uh, I see, yes. So, uh, when did you first hear about Madison Church? I first heard about Madison Church about June or July of last year. Mm -hmm. And who invited you? Um, Alyssa invited me. Alyssa. Uh, what did you think when Alyssa invited you? And be honest. I was actually quite nervous, but slightly excited because I had been out of the church for about five years and I was slipping away. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, should I go? But then I'm like, yeah, I probably should. Excited and nervous, yeah. All right. So what was it like in the very beginning? Um, as soon as I walked in the doors, it just felt like home. Everybody welcomed me and it just felt very loving. And that's also what keeps me coming back. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Have you seen growth in your own life? I have. Um, since being away from the church for about five years, I was in a very dark place. And since coming to Madison Church, I have gotten happier and helping me teach Mateo about God as well. Lord. Lord. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, what would you say to someone who's thinking about inviting someone else but hasn't, knowing that the person who invited you, Alyssa, probably had the same doubts? I would say even if you're nervous, just do it. Because yeah. if you don't invite somebody, then they'll never hear about the church and they'll never understand, like, know God. 
in the way that they could if you just get up the courage to invite them. Persistence is key. Yeah. I'd say Alyssa invited us for about three or four months before we finally decided on coming. That's great. So, anything else you want to add? No, I, I, everybody's lovely. <laughs> I love everyone. <laughs> I feel like home. Great. Thank it's you so great. much. The usual ask for a series like this on invitations is to invite some predefined number of people by the end of the series. That's what this typically leads up to. I'm not going to do that. I don't want you to invite your family that normally attends another church. I don't want you to invite your neighbor who invited you last month so that you can swap points or something. And I don't want to set some arbitrary goal so that you can feel like you've checked off the box when you get there or else feel guilty at the end of the series when you don't. I'm not going to do that. I want us to make invitations meaningful, really meaningful. You shouldn't invite because it's the good Christian thing to do. When you invite a person, it should be because you care about them. It should be because you have a heartfelt desire to introduce them to the community you found and the God you love, the God who loves you. So, yes, I am going to challenge you to invite people, but I'm not going to ask you to invite 10. I'm not even going to ask you to invite five. I'm going to ask you to invite the one person that you know that you think needs it most. That's all. Just one, but make it count. Okay? Start by going out for coffee or beer or sitting with them at lunch or whatever the situation is for you. Have a good time and don't invite them. But then do it again and again. Be their friend. Get to know them. But then also watch out for the cues. Those three cues that we just talked about a minute ago. I'm not saying lie. Don't avoid the subject of church. If they ask you about your life, your friends, your community, and talking about church is actually the answer, then yeah, of course tell them. The idea is to open up. If they already know about your church life and they actually ask about Madison Church, yeah, tell them. Because eventually they will ask. If God is a part of your life, it will invariably come up in conversation at some point with somebody that you know and are comfortable with. And when they've opened that door, then you can answer them truthfully and completely, and that's an opportunity to invite them. Now, it might not be by the time this series ends. It might be a month. It might be a year. Some of the people in this room, it took a really long time for them to actually accept the invitations that have been going out to them. But the important thing here is that you're not there just to invite them. You're there to be a friend, to spend time with someone you care about, and that's how you connect. And connecting with God's people is how God reaches people. So to wrap this up, let's see how John wraps up his story. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
And they came out of the town, and they made their way toward him. Here's the thing. You and I, you and I, are just like the woman at the well. You know why? Because Jesus had every right and expectation to overlook us, to leave us out. But we've all received an invitation from Jesus. And now, just like that woman at the well, it's our turn to share what we've found with others that we know. To share the joy and the love we experience from our God and our community with our families, our neighbors. To take the love of God into our workplaces and schools and invite them to come and see for themselves. We are here to connect people with God and each other. So let's look for the cues, extend an invitation, and celebrate as Jesus transforms more and more lives through that connection.